few minutes in order to make some comments on his subject. Now, during his lecture, Professor Book has emphasized both the continuities and the discontinuities between Boyle's world and our own. So let me continue that theme by examining the Boyle lectures themselves, of which this evening's is such an impressive example. The current series of annual Boyle lectures was established in 2004 by Michael Byrne, and it is administered by a board of eminent trustees. And this series focuses on the interrelations between theology and the sciences, a topic which, as we have heard, was of considerable importance to Robert Boyle himself. The present series also continues the highly regarded tradition that began in 1692 with the first Boyle lectures, or more precisely sermons, delivered by Richard Bentley. Yet the link between Bentley and ourselves has not been continuous. During the first few decades, the lectures were delivered annually, but became increasingly intermittent by the mid-century, and finally petered out at the beginning of the 20th. What then is the relation between Robert Boyle and the original Boyle lectures? Now the scope of the lectureship was specified by Boyle in a codicil added to his will on the 28th of July, 1691, when he was putting his affairs in order and just five months before his death. And as you will see from the final page of the handout, which contains the relevant text, he appointed four trustees, and he directed his trustees to appoint a learned divine or preaching minister at an annual salary of 50 pounds a year and specified three duties that the incumbent should perform. Now I'll return shortly to the second and third duties, but start with the first, which is, as you'll see on your sheet, to preach eight sermons in the year for proving the Christian religion against notorious infidels, viz. atheists, theists, pagans, Jews, and Mohammedans, but not descending lower to any controversies that are among Christians themselves. Now, not surprisingly, the scope of the present series of Boyle lectures bears little relation to the details specified in Boyle's will. Our excellent lecturer this evening is certainly learned, but not as far as I know, a learned divine. He has distilled a great deal of wisdom into one lecture, not eight, and I do hope his salary at his university was not pegged at 50 pounds. Moreover, in addressing the relation between science and religion, he has not attempted to prove the Christian religion against notorious infidels. But to appreciate the first duty specified by Boyle, we need to recognize his lifelong concern to develop compelling arguments in support of Christianity. He did this with great skill and determination, using all the resources he could muster. And he particularly appealed to the power of reason, although he acknowledged that some aspects of Christianity were above reason. Now within this broader project, he often appealed to arguments from science, especially, as we have heard, the argument from design. 
However, in many of his writings, he also deployed arguments that were unconnected with science. Thus, the science-related arguments were just part of a larger program to advance Christian apologetics. If we now turn to the early Boyer lectures themselves, historians have tended to overemphasize their scientific content, a tendency that received much impetus from Margaret Jacobs' 1976 book, The Newtonians and the English Revolution. Richard Bentley certainly exemplifies Jacobs' characterization as he addressed the structure of the world, drawing especially on Newton's theory of matter and forces. Primed by Newton himself, Bentley provided one of the first public expositions of the Newtonian system, and he utilized it against atheistical atomism associated with the name of Epicurus. By contrast, argues Bentley, Newton's system required a divine creator and was continually under God's control. Although Bentley made a few references to Boyle's scientific views, it's surely ironic that this first series of Boyle lectures offered unqualified support for Newton's science, not Boyle's. Now, a few subsequent Boyle le lectures uh, possessed extensive scientific content, such as the 1711 and 1712 series delivered by William Derham, the rector of Upminster. And these were given under the title Physico-Theology, or a demonstration of the being and attributes of God from his works of creation. However, as Chris Kenny has forcibly argued, the Jacob thesis leads us to misrepresent the early Boyer lectures by concentrating on those that use science for apologetic purposes and ignoring the vast majority that possess little or no scientific content. We gain a far more balanced view if we see the early Boyer lectures as typical examples of contemporary ecclesiastical rhetoric using any and all resources at hand to fight the infidel. While these arguments include, uh, included arguments from the natural world using science, but they also employed an array of traditional rational arguments that had nothing to do with science. But let's look more closely at the list of infidels uh, cited in Boyle's codicil. Atheists, theists, pagans, Jews, and Mohammedans. Now, these groups were are often identified as posing a major threat to Christianity. And Bentley himself considered that the most dangerous enemies of Christianity were atheists. And he observed in one letter, not only English uh, infidel, sorry, not one English infidel in a hundred is any other than a hobbist. Given his Boyer lectures, which were entitled A Confutation of Atheism, these were primarily directed against the followers of Thomas Hobbes. For 17th century Christians, atheists were deemed intellectually incompetent, stupid, and perverse in denying God's existence. Therefore, they needed a strong dose of rational theology to dispel their de delusions. And that's just what Bentley offered in that first series of Boyle lectures. 
Now, unfortunately, I don't think this strategy is going to work with Richard Dawkins, but you might try it. Now, the last three terms, pagans, Jews, and Mohammedans, refer uh, to adherents of other religions. But let me focus on Jews for a moment, as Boyle, like many contemporary Protestants, was immensely interested in the Jewish religion. As Michael Hunter has noted, Boyle engaged in serious religious discussions with Jews in England, in Florence, and in Amsterdam, including Manasseh ben Israel. Boyle studied Hebrew and compiled his own Hebrew grammar. One significant and, and um, revealing point emerges in Boyle's reaction to Cromwell's proposal in the mid-1650s to re readmit Jews into England. Boyle favored this, partly because he saw Jews as conveyors of important religious ideas, but also probably because he shared the messianic hope that the restoration and subsequent conversion of the Jews would speed Christ's second coming. Yet, he expressed concern that if Jews were readmitted, they would gain converts from Christianity, because he thought that Jews were superior in mounting arguments. So he therefore proposed that some Christians should acquire expert knowledge of Judaism so as to counter the arguments of the Jews. And this theme is, in a sense, reflected in the Codicil to the Will. But returning to the text of the Codicil, Boyle also directed the lecturer not to descend to any controversies that are among Christians themselves. Now, during Boyle's lifetime, which spanned, of course, the Civil War, the restoration of the monarchy, and the English Revolution, there were bitter controversies raising both within the established church and between the Church of England and the vast, vast array of nonconformist groups. Although Boyle himself was an, was an Anglican, he avoided aligning himself with any one party, but instead repeatedly preached toleration, as John has mentioned, to a remarkable degree. An example of this is the four trustees he appointed the le lectureship, two of whom were Anglican and the other two were dissenting laymen. And it's also significant, I think, that he did not include Catholics amongst the notorious infidels. They would have topped the list of many contemporary Protestants. By implicitly including Catholics within the Christian fold, he signaled that he did not wish his lectures to be used for anti-Catholic tirades. Now let's move on to the second of the three duties required of the lecturer to be assisting of all companies and encouraging of them in any undertaking for propagating the Christian religion to foreign parts. Now this is a continuation of Boyer's own philanthropic and missionary activities. For example, he had been a director of the East India Company, using his position to support missionary work. He also sponsored the translation of the Bible and various other religious works into several native languages. The lecturer's third and final duty was to be ready to satisfy such real religious scruples any may have concerning these matters, and to answer such objections or difficulties to which good answers have not yet been made. Now this answering of questions may sound rather trivial compared with the other two duties required of the lecturer, 
But I think it enables us to appreciate a crucial aspect of Bohr's religion and one which I think intersects with his science. Because it's clear that Boyle himself experienced deep scruples, deep doubts over religious issues. In his extensive writings on Christianity, he employed reason and analyzed religious texts closely, not only to convince others, but also in part to address his own doubts. Many of his contemporaries described him as immensely pious and said that in conversation, he always paused after the word God in order to allow brief reflection of the Almighty. John earlier emphasized that we have difficulty understanding Boyle's science because science has changed so much during the third of the millennium that separates him from ourselves. I would also suggest that religious sensibilities of the 17th century are nearly as foreign to us as is Boyle's science. The very notion of piety seems alien to our institutionalized religion, as does a related activity that Boyle pursued extensively. In striving to live a Christian life, Boyle engaged in casuistry. That is, the use of reason to resolve issues of conscience, especially in determining how to fulfill his duties as a Christian. For example, Boyle, the pious Christian, grappled with the issue of taking oaths, since some Christians, most notably Quakers, viewed swearing oaths as religiously unacceptable. Boyle's aspiration to live as a pious Christian, to propagate Christianity, and to conquer all scruples, provides a key to understanding him. These concerns not only lie at the heart of his explicitly religious writings, but also, as Chris Kenny has suggested, they underpin his plan for this annual series of sermons, the Boyer Lectures, which was the public equivalent of the examination of scruples and the resolving of doubts according to the application of reason. Likewise, it can be argued that Bohr's scientific activities were directed to realizing these same aspirations. Now, this isn't the place to argue the point in detail, but let me conclude by reminding you of the full title of one of Boyle's books. It is, and there's a picture of it in, in John's part of the handout, The Christian Virtuoso, showing that being addicted to experimental philosophy, a man is rather assisted than indisposed to be a good Christian. Boyle used science in the service of being a good Christian. He did not undertake his experimental researches solely in order to discover the st structure of the universe, but also, and most importantly, to advance this aspiration of being the good and pious Christian. This is not a justification of science that is likely to appeal to the present day research councils, but Boyle, quite luckily, was wealthy and lived in a dis different age, and he was blissfully ignorant of our medical research council and the engineering and physical sciences research council. He didn't have to fill in their forms. Instead, science for Boyle was ultimately 
for religious ends. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been treated this evening to a virtuoso performance. John Brook has enabled us to enter the complex and fascinating world that Robert Boyle inhabited. So like our own, but so different. Drawing on his impressive knowledge of the period, John has steered us through the subtleties of 17th century science, while elaborating on Boyle's impressive vision of how science should be linked to his own devout form of Christianity. To his analysis of Boyle's life and work, John has brought great insight and sensitivity and his own gentle sense of humor. This evening's address has been a most inspiring continuation of the series of Boyle lectures that Richard Bentley initiated 318 years ago. Now Boyle, you will remember, included vain affectation of applause among the sources of infidelity. Instead, I'm sure you will wish to express your appreciation of John Fortissimo e Combrio. It only remains for me to add your thanks to the lecturer and to Professor Cantor for their exceptional clarity, not to say intelligibility, and for the delight of their presentations tonight. And to extend that thanks to all who have assisted with the arrangements this evening, and notably to the worshipful company of Mercers and also of Grocers, our beloved patrons. I'm happy to be able to say that we expect next year's lecture to be on Tuesday, February the 8th, 2011, when it will be delivered by Jürgen Moltmann, Professor Emeritus of Systematic Theology at the University of Tübingen. Meanwhile, there is a printed copy of tonight's proceedings available for each and every one of you and not, I might add, slightly fiercely for those who aren't here. I know that will be carefully policed by the good people of St. Mary Le Beau, as if yet members of the Society for the Reformation of Manners. Please do be careful if you leave by the rather slippery ramp at the West Door. And a very good evening to you all.